0: up on today's show the just transition how just is it we'll speak with janice mckinnon former finance minister in saskatchewan and a professor a concern about children involved with government services in alberta dying and philadelphia flyers ivan provarov refused to wear a pride jersey for warm-up last night we'll speak with dr christopher wells uh, the just transition or sustainable jobs, depending on how you want it framed, it's rattled a lot of people in Alberta, including a lot of people inside the legislature, namely Premier Daniel Smith. Um At this point, there's no end of criticism about, you know, in reality, a piece of legislation we haven't even seen yet. It, it doesn't exist, but we have a pretty good idea of what it's going to be. Uh, the provincial government bills it as a job-destroying plan that will end oil and gas and destroy Alberta's economy. Federal government trying to reassure Albertans that, no, 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 that's not what it is. It's not a plan to shut down oil and gas, rather a plan to help workers in several different industries transition to new jobs as this energy transformation unfolds. But it's getting really, really heated. The rhetoric around this is uh, red hot, and I think lost in all of that is the fact that there's some serious business at hand that we could really use some government cooperation on. But that's my take. Let's find out what our next guest thinks. Janice McKinnon, uh, former finance minister under Roy Romano in Saskatchewan, a professor at the University of Saskatchewan now. An executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, and also uh, the person tapped by Jason Kenny to lead up the Blue Ribbon Panel into Alberta's finances, um, Ms. McKinnon. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you being here today. Oh, it's great to be on the program. You um you put together a, a, an opinion piece uh, on this in the Globe and Mail, talking about this just transition or sustainable jobs, whatever it's being called, but depending on who you talk to. Top of the list, um, oil and gas jobs. That that that's the focus here. That's what we need to be talking about, right?
1: Well, I think the problem is in the, the, the way that this has been presented. And it shows the problem with, of dealing with this federal government that kind of acts unilaterally and doesn't really work with the provinces when they have to. So the first thing is, why do they talk about just transition and name specifically oil and gas workers trans- transitioning to clean tech jobs? Many people are going to be transitioned. Mm-hmm. Many, many people, because of climate change, because of automation. So what they did is they had the tagline about what this is about, which is, of course, going to raise alarm bells in the province. And you can see the lack of communication with the province because if you look at Alberta right now, what's our main concern, and I live in Campmore, by the way, um, is is labour shortages. We can't get enough people and oil and gas has an opportunity to ramp up production because you have leaders from all around the world. And we need yeah, our definitely. Energy. Yeah, but we can't, we're constrained. One of our biggest constraints is those companies can't hire workers or they're having trouble. And one of their problems is, They're trying to reassure these workers that any transition from oil and gas will be decades long, not years. There's a future here. And they have their own federal government coming in saying this spring we're bringing forward legislation to transition oil and gas workers to other green jobs. There's the problem. That is is a huge problem. And why does it happen? It happens because... The federal government doesn't recognize the jurisdiction of the province. Uh, the pro- provinces are, have jurisdiction over resources like oil and gas. The provinces have sole jurisdiction over training. So rather than Minister Wilkinson saying, well, we had a table, why didn't Alberta come to the table? They should have sat down with the province and said, this is oil and gas, this is the province, this Saskatchewan and Newfoundland, where these workers are, here's what we're thinking of. What are we going to do? Let's work together. Alberta has its own training programs. So how are we going to mesh what we're doing with the province? But that is not the approach the federal government takes, particularly with respect to Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's here's our plan, yeah, we'll talk to you, get on board. And it has caused huge unnecessary in a way problems and and the other thing that is interesting here is that the i haven't seen the document recently released about the job losses in Mm -hmm. many sectors all across the piece right but one of the problems is uh the government the federal government says okay we want to get net zero emissions by 2050 polls canadians say yes i support climate change i support that but i think what that document is i haven't seen it but i think that document is the federal government's modeling of the job losses that will occur if you get to 2015 net zero and that's that's the part of the conversation we haven't had if you want to get to net zero 2050 this is what's going to happen these are the people who are going to lose their jobs And here are the costs. So it's been the conversation hasn't been a focused one because I think everybody agrees we have to reduce emissions and deal with climate change. But do we have to do it as aggressively as we're doing it? And what are the costs of doing it as aggressively as we're doing it?
0: Yeah. And I would agree with you completely. And I've long lamented here on the air, the fact that we've, we've got out in front of ourselves here and uh, we've, we could, you know, fall into the aspirational trap rather than the reality. Uh, let me play devil, devil's advocate here for the sake of conversation. Um, why can't the industry, I mean, how much does industry play in terms of the economy transitioning and the industry, you know, uh, not reinvesting in uh, record production, record revenue, record profits that's doing extremely well right now, but they're not reinvesting they're not expanding they're not hiring they're paying off debt and buying back shares so where does industry fit into all of this
1: okay so there's there's the the the, the problem though for the federal government the oil sands which is the which is a major emitter um, that all of the major companies have banded together there to form the pathways Alliance right they have proposed that they're willing to spend twenty four billion dollars to transition uh to a low carbon product they're waiting for the federal government to respond because the if you look at other countries look at norway look at the united states carbon capture technology is what they're using they're ramping up production they're using carbon capture technology to reduce emissions you bury the emissions that um, the federal government, the national governments in these countries, are paying two thirds of the cost of the t- tax credit worth that covers two thirds the cost of the transition. The federal government here has a tax credit that's only fifty percent. At some point, these companies are going to say, "We're not staying here. We're going to where we can do what we do more profitably." So the fed- the, the companies are prepared. They're they're on the same page. But if you look at what the federal government does, and I've been at some of those meetings with Minister Wilkinson and Minister Keeble, um, they don't say, let's find common ground. The companies said that uh, by 2030, they could reduce emissions by 30%. Instead of saying, yes, let's get at it, the federal government. The companies say that. We can do this. We will do this. We will invest. Instead of the federal government, if you really wanted to make this work, what would you say if you were the federal government? You'd say, Exactly. Not our preferred target, but let's get at it. Let's get the tax credits. Let's get the regulatory process going.
0: That's the thing. I mean, we we, it has turned now into an absolute mess. Uh, Just it's it's yelling and screaming. Is it too late to back up and say, okay, listen, we're all talking about the same thing here. I mean, does that relationship exist between the province of Alberta and specifically the UCP government? Because we know that they're mortal enemies and they've said as much is that is that opportunity still there i guess is the question can that still happen
1: i guess i guess let me back up though here's what you're dealing with instead of the federal government saying yes they're the companies are prepared to put in 24 billion dollars the target is 30 percent reductions by 2030 nope we have a target of 42% reductions by mm-hmm. 2030 yeah. which can only happen if you reduce production which means that oil isn't produced here it's produced in Qatar or dictatorship sure. it just I agree. so it's very difficult it's not as if i don't i don't blame this government i think this government has been forced into a position by the lack of real desire to cooperate the federal government doesn't come in and say okay here's what we're thinking about where are you at and and cooperation doesn't occur within you know a couple of days months even it's a long process where you have to sit down you have to be patient you have to compromise where's the common ground i don't believe the federal government has shown any desire to find common ground with alberta In terms of reducing emissions, there is no evidence of it. Um, Ms.
0: McKinnon, thank you so much for being here. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you. (laughs) Last year, Children in the care of our provincial—well, not in the care of our provincial government. I shouldn't say that. These are these are kids who had some involvement with government intervention services. Okay, so it's not necessarily kids that were, you know, in government institutions or anything like that. But in some way, they'd come into an interaction with the provincial government. Um, from April of 2021 to April of 2022, almost 50 of them died. Dozens, 49 of them—an increase of 44 percent from the previous year. Uh, this week, opposition MLAs through their support behind um, a committee report. Seeing would like to have a all party committee in the legislature deal with this openly, transparently, and get some answers to what's going on. They would like to see five different ministries involved, echoing calls from the child and youth advocate who's been saying the same thing for some time. So to give us some insight on, um, what they would like to see, we have, uh, Raki Pancholi joining us, the NDP children's services critic. Um, Ms. Pancholi, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks, Jay. This is an important conversation. It really is. I appreciate having it.
3: Yeah,
0: and I I think we can all agree that, you know, uh, getting all hands on deck to make sure that um, kids are taken care of uh, shouldn't be a political conversation. But the numbers I gave with dealt with the last fiscal year, right? And it was an increase of 44% in terms of deaths.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I want to clarify, too, it's you're right that these are not all the children and and youth who died in 2021, uh, as you said, almost 50 of them. They weren't all necessarily in government care, but they were all kids who were involved in the child intervention system. Meaning, you know, report had been made, um, there was an assessment, yeah. an intake going on because there's safety issues, and their kids. These kids are receiving some support. Some of them are actually in government care, and some of them are kids who are aging out of care. Meaning, they were in co- government care, and now they're 18, and they're aging out into adulthood.
0: Yeah, important clarification. Um, what what are we seeing so far this year? That was was that a one-off, or are we seeing a steady trend up? What what can we tell from the- the numbers that we have
2: yeah so the numbers are devastating and they're not improving and in fact um, we know that they're on track to be the same if not a little bit higher than last year and we actually heard from the office of the child and youth advocate on monday who told us that she actually was pretty dire in her warning she said next time i come before this committee again it's going to be even worse she was essentially saying you know the numbers she gets the notifications every time a child and youth dies who's had in receiving services or had within the last two years, and she said the numbers are going to be even higher. so um it's it's not looking good. It is not, and it's it's been an issue that we have been drawing attention to for well over two years to say we could see this trend happening. And uh, action is desperately needed and was desperately needed for some time now. And uh, that's why we continue to raise this issue. It's been three years in a row, actually, that we as an opposition have been saying uh, and echoing the calls from the advocate to say, look, we need some transparency and accountability. The advocate makes these recommendations to government ministries when they see these reports and they see these deaths. They do an investigation. They say, "Look, here's some things that we think ministries should be doing." But we don't have any answers from the ministries themselves as to whether or not they're accepting those recommendations and, and to what extent they are. And so that's what she's been saying. Let's have some. Let's have an honest conversation uh, about what the ministries are doing, why they aren't doing certain things, what's working, what's not working, because we've got a crisis. And so we've been throwing our support behind the advocate for three years saying, let's have that transparent uh, discussion because children and youth are the ones who are are suffering and are uh, bearing the cost of this, and we need to know what's happening.
0: So how would that work? It's a a committee, right? It's a a legislative committee that you would like to see struck uh, to hear from all five of these ministries, right?
2: Yeah. So the idea is that it would be an opportunity to look at the specific recommendations the advocate has made, and I want to give you an example of one, and probably the one that the The advocate has been uh, talking about as being critical. So when we look at the number of kids and youth in particular who have died over the last year and a half or so, many of them are as as a result of drug poisoning. I don't think that's going to be a surprise, um, given that we know we're in a bit of an opioid crisis and and drug poisoning crisis right now. But it's hitting youth the hardest. So the advocate has been saying for uh, about a year now, we need to have a specific strategy for youth when it comes to opioids. Um, We know government is taking some action, a little bit of action on drug poisoning, but it's all geared towards adults. And young people are different, right? Their brains develop differently. They need to learn more about um, educationally, you know, what to understand, how to identify uh, unsafe drugs and how to take uh, safe actions. They, they need that information in a different way than adults. And she's been saying we need that youth-specific opioid strategy. Uh, But so far, we have no response from the Ministry of Health as to whether or not they're willing to do that. And she said, I don't know why they're not doing this, and I think we should have that conversation. Why aren't they doing that? So we're saying, okay, let's bring the Ministry of Health before the committee, and let's ask them that question. Do they think they need a specific youth opioid strategy? Why not? What are they doing already that they think might suit that? Um, and just have that conversation. Um, and we would do that with each of the ministries that has recommendations uh, from, the, from the advocate. Um, but, you know, there's quite a few ministries. And mm-hmm. because all these ministries serve kids. Kids don't, uh, you know, exist in isolation. It's not just the children's services. You know, there's a lot of ministries that ultimately have an impact on kids' lives. And we need to hear from all of them.
0: Now, the, in response, the government, as as far as I understand, has agreed to at least some of these requests from um, your your MLAs and the Child and Youth Advocates, saying, you know what, we'll put together a committee with Children's Services, Mental Health and Addiction, a few more. A total of four ministries, right? It's justice and health that won't be involved?
2: That's right, justice, health and education. So, uh, you know, I, I really can't explain the thinking behind uh, why the UCP kind of... Cherry picked certain ministries or not. We looked at, okay, who had, which ministries had recommendations put forward by the child and youth advocate? There are specific targeted actions that are recommended for them. Let's have those ministries come forward and and report. I can't speak to why the UCP, uh, very reluctantly, again, after three years of asking, finally agreed to bring just some ministries and not others. Um, And it's all going to happen in one meeting, uh, likely sometime in February, which, let's be honest, is only a few months before a provincial election. So this feels like a little bit of reluctant action at the last minute just to look like they're doing something. And as you mentioned at the top, Shay, this is this is not a political issue. I understand. You know, I'm a member of the opposition. It looks like things are partisan. But this is not a partisan issue. We all all members of the Mm -hmm. assembly, all Albertans. Should be looking at what's happening, these heartbreaking numbers and saying we all deserve to get a little bit more information on what's happening and what we can do better. This is not a partisan issue. And so that's why we have been saying that for three years, let's do this. Let's have these important conversations so we can have better outcomes for kids and youth in care. That is our ultimate responsibility as lawmakers, as, as government officials. That's who we, are, who we're here to serve. And, um, I, I can't, I can't explain why they're doing this so late, but it feels like, This is just window dressing for them right now, but this is a really serious
0: issue. Well, I mean, to be fair, why would you do that? I mean, why, why would you, if, if you have something that you don't want to talk about and you think reflects poorly on your government, why on earth would you want to do it two months before an election? I think it would be the opposite. I mean, you'd want to, you'd want to push it down the the field for uh, a little while longer so you don't have to bring it up for an election. I don't, I don't know how this would be seen as positive politics for the UCP.
2: I think they've received some, uh, you know, significant criticism for lack of action, and and they may want they look like they they want to look like they're doing something. I mean, it's the same way that they're, you know, finally, you know, handing out some affordability checks, but only to some people. You know, they want to address the EMS crisis, so they're going to give people a voucher for Uber. Like this is they're doing just sort of window dressing things at the end. Honestly, um, the the stats that are published regularly and publicly speak pretty terribly to the UCP themselves, right? Those numbers speak for themselves. I think they have to be in their view, they want to look like they're doing something, uh, but they're not really giving themselves any any runway to actually take significant action. And if they, they were mm-hmm. they, they can happily come and speak to it and say what they're doing um, and you know what they're really jam-packing for ministries into a three-hour meeting I don't think they're expecting much substance to come out of it anyways and they can say look we did this we listened to the advocate um, and meanwhile the numbers are going to speak for themselves when it comes to the children and youth sure they will yeah
0: and and of course we'll all follow up with the numbers um Rocky thanks so much for being here I appreciate your time today So the story, um, you've probably heard it. It's been all over the news today, especially in uh, Hockey Mad Canada. Um, the Flyers last night held Pride Night. Every team does it. The Oilers are doing it March 25th, I believe. Um, and, and basically what it is, is during the pregame skate, uh, teams typically have a Pride-themed jersey, some sort of rainbow motif on their warm-up jerseys. Um, they use Pride tape, a lot of them. Um, but last night, one player... Uh, Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov declined to join the team on the ice for warm-ups he decided to stay in the dressing room rather than put on the jersey and go out and take part in what happened yesterday and uh, his his reason for that, the reason he said he'd do it just because of his religious beliefs, this was his comment after the game
3: I respect everybody's choices, my choice is to stay true to myself and my religion that's all I'm going to say uh, like I said, that's all I'm
0: going to comment up on that. Um, if you have any hockey questions, I would like, I would answer those. So he said, uh, I respect everybody. I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. His coach, John Tortorella, uh, after the game said, with Provi, it's being true to himself and to his religion. This has to do with his belief and his religion. That's one thing I respect about Provi. He's always true to himself. So that's where we're at with that. I will note that John Tortorella, back during the take-a-knee days, said that if any one of his players took a knee, he'd bench them. So um it depends what belief you're standing up for, I think, when it comes to Coach John Tortorella, because... uh well, that's pure hypocrisy. If not, 780 496 974 A lot of text already coming in. I want to chat with Dr. Christopher Wells, who has been deeply involved in this very topic. Um, uh, Dr. Wells is the Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University, but is also heavily involved in hockey and pride around hockey. So, Dr. Wells, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time my pleasure so yeah you've been you've been intimately involved in sort of bringing this pride movement to hockey you created pride tape so tell us about the work you've done and why you think the recognition of pride by the nhl is important
3: well it's it's certainly been uh, a long time coming and um you know for for many decades here in in edmonton we have been uh trying to get uh, the edmonton oilers uh you know involved in uh, supporting pride and and, and, uh, reaching out to the 2 LGBT community. And I can tell you in the, the early days, uh, there was, there was no interest. And in fact, we met with a lot of resistance and, and homophobia. And we had to wait for, uh, not only the leadership to change, but, uh, for societal attitudes to change. And, you know, back in, uh, 2016, um, we created the concept of, uh, Pride Tape. And, and it was really about, um, uh having players wrap their sticks with rainbow colored hockey tape to um, show um inclusion not only you know to players to fans um to uh coaches and the entire community because what we knew what was because of the you know the sometimes the, the toxic and homophobic atmosphere of of the hockey and the locker room in particular many young people were dropping out of of uh, hockey because they didn't feel safe and they didn't feel included and so you know we reached out to the then captain at the time andrew ference and you know that very first roll of pride tape he brought into the locker room and he said to uh you know his teammates this is what it's about and i hope you'll join me with using it right he didn't force it on anybody and but he made it available and um you know the rest is sort of as we say is history now yeah. every team in the national hockey league uses Pride tape and 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 sports teams and leagues all around the world and it's always been about a message of in- inclusion
0: And you're right. It has spread uh, like wildfire throughout the league. And and every single team has a Pride night. Every single team has the Pride tape and they wear the Pride jerseys. How important is that? I mean, we talk so much about the culture of hockey and how we're trying. I mean, We've all seen a million commercials about hockey is for everyone. Hockey is for everyone. So, I mean, that message, how important is the players actually embracing the Pride movement? Um, What does that mean? Yeah, you know, the message is really
3: important and it's, and it's aspirational. We know we're not there yet. We know actually hockey doesn't include uh, everyone and that we have a lot of work to do, but it's about building momentum. And as we like to say with pry tape, you know, wrapping your stick is just the first step. You know, what's more important is the conversation that it begins to engender because that's how you know, social change happens. It happens through education. It happens through, you know, the safe spaces to have conversations to, you know, uh, challenging stereotypes and misinformation and, and prejudice. But, you know, from the early days, we knew not everyone was going to support the message, right? And mm. so we focused on the allies, those people who were, who were ready, who wanted to get educated and, and put our energies and support behind them because we know that's what builds uh, a movement. I think in this case with the Philadelphia Flyers, what, you know, we're not talking about is that the majority uh, of the players, all but one, Wore the jersey and we're happy to wear the jersey and to get out and support the night. I think that's a major uh, accomplishment. Because yeah. I can tell you when we first started this, that wasn't the case.
0: No, and there's a couple of Flyers players, captains who have actually gone above and beyond. They actually got involved with LGBTQ groups in Philly and invite a bunch of them to games all the time. So they're not, they're not just paying lip service and putting on a jersey. They're actually going out there and building those bridges that you talk about.
3: Yeah, and that, that's really, really important. And I think something we really want to emphasize is, you know, is uh, this work isn't just about, you know, putting on a, a, you know, rainbow tape on your stick or wearing a yeah. pride jersey. It's about meaningfully connecting with the community and inviting the community in and using our privilege and our platform to amplify these messages of, you know, inclusion, acceptance and and human rights. And there is going to always be, you know, resistance to this. Um, otherwise, you know, we wouldn't need to have a pride, exactly. right? Or we wouldn't need pride tape.
0: So, I mean, a lot of talk about Provorov and whether, the, you know, a lot of people saying the Flyers shouldn't have let him play. If he didn't want to wear the jersey and he didn't want to take part in the warm-up, he shouldn't have played. You're taking an opposite approach. I found it pretty interesting saying, you know what? We don't want people just throwing on the jersey. We, we, we want allies showing up to support us, not just people going through the motions, right? That's important.
3: Real allies. And, and you know, I think what it... I always go back to that famous quote by Maya Angelou, who's, who once said, you know, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time right and i'd much rather know where you know provorov and others stand on the issue and you know then we can make you know choices the flyers can uh, ultimately now decide is 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 this somebody that they want to have on their team and teammates can decide that as well you know hockey can be a uh, a very, uh, you know, close knit family about what happens, you know, in that, that locker room. And, uh, um, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what the fallout is
0: now that, um, you know, we know, uh, Peroff's values and beliefs. Well, I mean, the, the, it's already been announced by some of the captains that there'll be further conversations with them to have this discussion. I, I guess in, in light of the larger thing, and I'm, and I'm really focused on trying to, this initiative that I think the NHL talks about, and we see examples of, OK, it's all we 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 hear this message of inclusivity, we hear this message of diversity. But when push comes to shove, the league just sort of doesn't I don't know if you can enforce it, Chris. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like what? Yeah. How heavy handed should the league be involved in here? Like you said, you don't want to try and force people into, uh you know, if that's who they are, that's who they are.
3: Yeah, well, I think it just shows the the importance uh, of these kinds of campaigns and initiatives and of the importance of putting more resources behind, you know, education. We're never going to change everyone's right. mind. You know, the locker room is just like any other, you know, workplace that you or I work in. There's people we're going to agree with or disagree, you know, uh, with as well. And particularly for the NHL, when we're bringing people from all kinds of different cultures and countries from uh, around the world, we're going to have, you know, this this collision uh of values but um i think you know maybe maybe it says we need to uh you know double down on uh the work of inclusion and you know maybe maybe uh the flyers hold two pride nights in the air, right that mm. you know it doesn't have to be one time it doesn't have to just be one event in fact you know, we need to infuse this in everything that we do. And, and maybe the player says, you know what, this is just, this isn't going to be the right t- team for me. And uh, maybe, you know, I need to go somewhere else.
0: Um <laughs> Do we sort of lose any momentum we may have been built by focusing on this? It's one individual, Chris. I mean, Pride Nights have been going on for a long time, and I'm sure there's players who put on the jersey when they didn't necessarily feel like they were an ally or had any interest in being an ally. But this is the first time we've seen one NHL player um, openly push back against this diversity movement. Are we paying too much attention to it?
3: yeah you know and i uh, i think it's positive right it's it's allowing us to have this conversation about you know what else needs to happen in in hockey how far have we come you know what work left is left, uh, to be, uh, done. Uh, you know, it's, it's a flashpoint for us to, uh, you know, look at hockey culture. And I think all of this discussion is, is really, uh, important, but it's important that, you know, we not lose sight that, you know, we are moving forward. And I think the fact that we're paying so much attention to this is, is actually a testament to that.
0: Um, and as you say, the initiatives continue with every other team around the league, they're still happening, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think
3: it's really going to, uh, um have teams look at um what they're doing in fact uh you know we know uh overnight the orders for pride tape have uh you know gone through the roof and so people are are saying you know more rainbows more support um we need to get more serious about the message and we need to um you know live it out not only on pride night but all the other nights
0: Chris, thanks so much for being here I appreciate your time as always Thanks for listening today To hear any of our other interviews You can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us